This is Channel 253. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Our essential question today, why is the work of the ACLU in Washington important and relevant in 2018? Why is it relevant, Annie? I don't know. I just said important, like (laughs) important. So that got stuck in my throat for some reason. That's right. We are very lucky um, to have an expert here today with us, and that is Vanessa Torres Hernandez. Hi, folks. Uh, she's attorney, a youth policy director at the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington. That's the ACLU. Um, she was also a Nerd Farmer podcast guest on episode 27, where she talked about civil liberties and tax on undocumented students in schools. It's a really fantastic episode. I was actually re-listening to it, and I was like, yes, ooh, that's right. Ooh, I want to ask some follow-up questions about that. Um, but let's just start with the basics. Tell us a little about who you are, where have you come from, why are you in Washington State, have you been here forever, I, what's your I, story? Yeah, so I um, have not been in Washington State forever. I've been here for about 14 years, which I feel like in the you know universe of people who live in Seattle makes me on the older Seattle mm-hmm. end, but yeah. <laughs> I am not an original. Not a recent transplant. No. Yeah. Um, so I am originally from Guam, actually. So I grew up on a tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, my whole family is still there. Um, and I went to college in Western Massachusetts and met a guy oh. um, <laughs> uh, who is my husband, who's from Puerto Rico. And uh, given that we were both from islands on opposite ends of the yeah. earth and That's both of our families would be completely crushed if we went and favored one family over uh-huh. the other, we moved to someplace in the middle. And Seattle is actually middle-ish. <laughs> is from both. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, are equally far from both of our families. Yeah. Yeah. What's the flight cost difference between... So it is more expensive to go to Guam because Mm. Guam has like 100,000 people on Mm. it and Mm. uh, one airline monopoly. So it is horrifyingly (laughs) expensive um, to to fly to Guam. It's it's, not like you can really like take a boat to Guam because that's like, I mean, prohibitively expensive. It would also take you like four years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you're in your uh, in your luxury yacht. Yeah. We should call Betsy DeVos. Maybe we can borrow her yacht. Oh, there we go. I mean, I actually do. I did have a law school classmate once who had like sailed across the Pacific for about yeah. nine months and had briefly docked in Guam, but is not um, yeah. not really how you want to roll. No, that sounds um, really stressful. So, so yeah. So uh, Seattle was sort of midpoint. Um, yeah. Been here for about. It's kind of a hub, too. So you can like if you in the event you needed to fly to Guam, you could easily find an airplane well, and spend I mean, all your life savings to and, get there. And spend 24 hours on yeah. said That's plane. Amazing. 24 hours um, on an airplane. Yeah. So yeah. you have a few degrees. Can you talk a little bit about your from framing and bias yeah and so i um so i went to amherst college in western massachusetts which is like straight up liberal arts college yeah. and i went there because for two reasons one because i had no real frame of reference for college mm-hmm. right um or for us college you know growing up in guam it just wasn't much of a you know mm-hmm. people who left typically went to the same sort of like slew of places, right? Um, but I decided I was going to be contrarian, and so I got the U.S. News and World Report and, like, <laughs> nice. went through, like, the rankings, right, yes. and literally just applied to, like, all the things in yeah. a certain ranking bandwidth, which is how I ended up at Amherst. Um, one, because it was the best school I got into, and yeah. two, because I didn't have to take math. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> all the math teachers listening are friendly. I know. Groaning. I'm oh. It's just because, you know, because, uh, yeah, I was... It, the nice thing about liberal arts colleges is you can do whatever you feel like doing. And so I thought that sounded awesome. And I just wanted to take classes, uh, including my one of my favorites, which was entitled Witches, Myth and Historical Reality. Um, It was like a combination history, anthropology class about like 
historical approaches towards witchcraft, and then we did a whole bunch of like Wicca. Um, oh, that's interesting. That's so, super interesting. It, it feels is, very evergreen. I'm like, yeah, why don't we is, have a course like it that? Is, <laughs> it is very, very liberal arts college. Um, and I, I ended up doing an interdisciplinary major there in um, some combination of education, psychology, and like ethnic studies, hmm. which is what they called it at the time. Um, so really looking at the way that race and gender play out in um, our education systems. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then I went and did a master's in teaching um, and uh, got my certificate in uh, social studies, taught um, English language art, taught humanities, basically, mm-hmm. was what we called it, um, language arts and social studies with a touch of uh, running the after-school drama club. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, corralling sixth graders through <laughs> sure. musical theater. Um, <laughs> Sounds really fun. It was super, super, super fun. Totally exhausting. The kind of thing yeah. where, like, you lose your voice on the regular. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, was like good for your soul. It, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so very, very good for my soul. Actually, one of the kids who I used to, who, who was like the star of the school musical because she was legitimately amazing, is now teaching middle oh, school music. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, it makes me very happy. Um, and then uh, after teaching for a few years, moved to Washington State and had the opportunity to go to law school. And uh, so... That that is my hopefully last degree. Where did you go to law school? I went to the University of Washington. Nice. Um, so yeah, I am a big big advocate of uh, go to law school where you intend to practice. Yeah. Um, and so I you know was it had a great opportunity to build community here and frankly like the, particularly the public interest mm-hmm. legal community in Seattle is about like you know, yay big. It's it's incredibly small. Mm-hmm. And so when you are kind of in the community already, you get to know everybody right. um, just just by osmosis almost. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's awesome. great. Mm-hmm. Really I have cool. like a million questions running my head all over yeah. the again. Um, so thinking about your just moves in particular, what were some of the, can you give us a little snippet of like, what were some of the cultural shifts you've seen? Like moving from Guam to, Emer- yeah, where's Emerson again? You said it's Massachusetts. Western Massachusetts. Yeah, it's yeah like, that's it, a big change. And then from there to the West Coast and then like degree, I mean the changes yeah, in the profession. Yeah, so, um, so moving from Guam to the States was a like, massive, massive culture shock in a way that I don't think. And I had, you know, I had lived in the U.S. when I was a little kid mm-hmm. up until the time I was eight because my parents were uh, 18 and 20 when oh, I was wow. born. And so um, I sort of trailed them through their successive educational degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as they were done, right, then we all moved back to Guam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think I was fully prepared for, um, you know, like the gradations of privilege and mm. and 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 the massive sort of mm. band of um, wealth and and the racialized way in which wealth and and privilege and power were distributed. So like I remember mm. going into my first class at Amherst College, and you know I did really well in school and like mm. you know read a bazillion things. Um, and I remember sitting in my first class and being like, I have no idea what these words are. Like, I have no idea what anyone is talking about, right? Um, And it it was the first time I had sort of been exposed to sort of like prep school Mm -hmm. kind of like deep, like really, really old money kind of concentrations Mm -hmm. of privilege and power. Um, And it was jarring to me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that combined with, you know, Amherst is a more diverse school Mm -hmm. than a lot of liberal arts colleges, but of course, you know, there's still pretty significant divisions between um, students of color and, mm-hmm. and white students, mm-hmm. right? And sort of like wealthier mm-hmm. students and less wealthy students. And so to see how um, racialized and extreme the, the variability was in that was was really completely shocking to me. Because mm-hmm. like I knew about systemic racism in the kind of like intellectual sense, mm-hmm. but Guam is so small, mm-hmm. right? And mostly brown, um, and you know, comes out of a colonial history. So right. it, the the sort of race and power and politics and wealth issues are just very different there. Mm-hmm. And so the first time I was sort of thrown into um, American style race and privilege issues, I was kind mm-hmm. of like, oh my god, mm-hmm. um, which was in part what led me to sort of develop this major in education and mm-hmm. and um, you know psychology and and race because I. I was completely flummoxed, honestly, mm-hmm. by how um, expected it was that this sort of like incredible education would be for some folks and how completely um, unexpected it mm. was for others. Yeah. Mm. So that so studying that at that school and in that context, 
do you feel like uh, what's the question I'm asking? Like, how did that influence? How, the does, way the, how does the context of the environment it? shape how you thought about it? Do you think if you were at state a state college in Massachusetts, if you would have had a different experience in a similar type of like field of study, or was it like looking at your surroundings, did that affect how you? Learn about it. Yeah. I mean, I think in retrospect, right, I, I do think that um, learning about education and race in a place like Amherst College, which, you know, is in a pretty elite sort of town mm-hmm. surrounded by kind of old um, sort of old factory towns that are slipping into poverty and diversifying, right, mm-hmm. in a more um, white part of Massachusetts, but, you know, sort of rapidly browning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think, though, that that studying that in that particular context, it's, and I did, right, slip into sort of like, almost like white savior mentality, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I have this amazing education. It is my responsibility to (laughs) educate the children's, right? Um, I I, I really did um, fall into that to some degree. And I think it took a while to come out of it. Mm -hmm. So how long did you teach for? So I taught for um, three years at a charter school in Massachusetts, you know, my one year of student teaching during my ed yeah. degree, um, and then a year when I moved to Seattle. So about five years total. Yeah. Did um, you see a difference from teaching over there to teaching yes. here? Right, what were some of those highlights? So, um, you know, I went from a, a small charter school where I had basically, where, like one, all of my students were um kids of color. Mm-hmm. And I had pretty much free reign to design a curriculum and mm-hmm. do, frankly, so long as I could justify how it met the Massachusetts state standards for sure, social yeah. studies. <laughs> like I could do whatever I wanted. Um, so I, you know, designed a class in, um, I mean, I, it was called you know, geography, but frankly, it was like the history of social movements. Yes. Um, so I was like, geography. I was like let's geography. Go. I mean, look, we're going to focus on an area. It's human right? geography. We're going to pick an area and we're going to yeah. study like a big thing that is happening yeah. in that region of the world right now and trace its historical roots back and understand the ways yeah. in which sort of broader systems of colonialism mm-hmm. and, um, you know, like like global migration and trade have impacted this thing, right? So I taught units on apartheid in South mm-hmm. Africa, That's and I taught units on the Israeli-Palestinian I conflict. I want to take your class. It sounds <laughs> I, so fun. I saw that syllabus somewhere along the <laughs> around that I can study. I, like, I, have a, I have an actual physical box that's yes. still in my basement awesome. that I cannot get rid of. You should digitize, you should digitize <laughs> it. Oh my gosh, I have so many yeah. files. Don't yeah. even talk about no, <laughs> I mean, it. I don't know how I will ever use this again, but I have like just this emotional attachment. I also yeah, have like a portfolio yeah. that includes samples of the work my students Aww. did, and I just can't. I, I just, just totally understand. Basement. I have something very similar in my garage, and whenever I look at it, and I, we're cleaning out the garage, and I, my wife's like, well, what about that one? And I'm like, I can't even take the lid off. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not that one. That one stays. <laughs> no one touches it. Um, so then where did you teach in Seattle, and what was that like? So when I came to Washington, I taught at a small private school, um, which, you know, I think just kind of culturally was a big shock and a difference. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I applied to to teach in public schools when I moved here. But the the way the hiring system worked at that time was basically newbies don't get in yeah. until the very end. So I got a call from Seattle Public Schools um, like three days after school had started, mm-hmm. being like, "We're oh, ready for you to start here." And yeah. I was like, "Dudes, I've got another." It's still kind of like job. that. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sadly, so, yeah. Um, so I don't really know. Yeah. You know, so I ended up at this private school because it was sort of what was mm-hmm. available to me at the time. But I, you know. It was a really different experience, mm-hmm. I think partially because um, – I don't even know how to say this, like, kindly. Um, <laughs> That's all right. We like shade. Um, we're not so, as shady as Nate for Nerd Farm. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Seattle prides itself on being really progressive mm-hmm. and does not always perform as such. So I think I wasn't yeah. quite prepared for the degree of people being like, why are you politicizing everything? I'm like, because it, history is political, friends. <laughs> yeah, like, I, you know, So I remember the first day of my class, I, I had my, my little poster. Right? Y'all yeah. have your poster galleries, right? So yeah. my, like, I, had a, I had a Malcolm X poster, and a parent came in and just oh. reamed me. Like, terrorists, and why aren't there any white people on the walls? And I'm like, because it's a world history class. <laughs> Um, wow. 
And I, I just, I don't think going from, again, sort of like a, you know, coming from a school where there was a clear, um, you know, sort of social justice mm-hmm. bent, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think I was quite as prepared for this idea that, like, teaching should be some sort of politically mm-hmm. neutral yeah. activity. You right? know, private schools are interesting because I taught at a small private school also, and they can you can either be in a, a private school there's kind of a, there's such a range right like there's these small private schools that are either really politically conservative or politically more liberal right in terms of their like teaching style and um politics right mm-hmm. um but it's but there's kind of the the larger private schools that are really just kind of like public schools but with a lot of extra icing you yeah. know and so it's just um it's interesting to see i don't know that that range of kind of private school teaching experiences too are really yeah because I had something similar you were talking about it and I'm like that happened to me (laughs) that happened to me (laughs) so then was that partly why you left school or like why did you decide to become an attorney well I mean honestly it was it was opportunity right I um, the year that I applied to law school was a year that the University of Washington started a public interest law Mm. scholarship program and so it was sort of like in, in November they announced this thing and I was like that feels like a thing I should be doing. And yeah. so it was almost a serendipitous. And I was like, yeah. well, I'm going to apply to this one law school. I'm going to apply to this one program. Mm-hmm. If I get into the program, yeah. I will go to yeah. law school. And if I don't get into the program, then I will, you know, yeah. I'll keep teaching. And we'll figure it out. And I I got into the program and I was like, well, there we go. Decision <laughs> has been made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I had, I had the opportunity to go to law school, you know, basically on a free ride, nice. um, which is a big deal given yeah. how yeah, expensive law, law school tuition really is. And I also had the opportunity to do it in a program that was structured to produce public interest lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, I wasn't going into law school. You know, I, I thought about law school um, before, but I was really um, – I didn't want to go to a program and I didn't want to be in an environment where it, everything was going to be trying to mold me into being mm-hmm. this sort of like corporate mm-hmm. business lawyer because right. I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do with my law yeah, degree, right. right? Like I wanted yeah. to be – I wanted to like romanticize and be like Thurgood Marshall, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it seems like uh, like law schools I, – I have a few friends who have gone to law school and kind of their experiences. You, you become like a law – generalist in certain respects and there's not always that specialization or that focus that you really crave right and so it sounds like you found that with your program yeah and so I was really lucky to be able to go where and on a track where it was like Mm -hmm. the the people who were mentoring me my sort of cohort of peers um we were all driving in the same direction and so that for me was was kind of the best possible way I could have done it and with the opportunity to do it it's like okay but I do still I was telling Hope earlier I um, (laughs) absolutely romanticize going back to the classroom like I miss it Mm -hmm. Um, because I I find I find kids' minds so interesting Mm -hmm. Um, and frankly so much more interesting than adults (laughs) (laughs) and so you know whenever I'm whenever I'm I'm in a point where I'm kind of in a long slog where I'm like I just I'm I'm just banging my head against the wall and I'm just saying the same things over and over again and nobody is listening. Like maybe I'll go back to teaching and then I will be able to see, like I will know, I will be like, today I taught this thing to these kids and that was good. And they were flexible and open-minded and they were totally into it. Yeah, Yeah. and I can see. You could just write a book about it now and like, (laughs) (laughs) you're actually to go back and write a book and we'll just make it famous. Yeah, right. (laughs) So how long have you been at the ACLU? Something like three or four years? Oh, no, I've actually been at the ACLU now for seven, almost eight. So I basically oh, started. I, I got out of law school. Yeah. I, I clerked for a federal okay. judge, which is basically law school on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I went straight to the ACLU, but I've held a couple of different roles there. So for a few years, I was a litigator and mm-hmm. I was working on, so I was like the lawsuit filing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working on reentry issues. So I was focusing mm-hmm. on, um, you know, uh, changing the laws that apply to people who are coming out of prisons and jails. Yeah. So mm-hmm. things like employment and housing discrimination and debtors prison. Mm-hmm. Which um, That's so interesting. shouldn't exist. Should yeah. not exist. Um, and so did a lot of work to try to prevent to eliminate debtors' prisons in Washington State. And things yeah. have gotten better in the past few years. But um, I heard a crazy story on NPR about um, people having to pay for their own prosecution in yes. California and how they just they California just passed the law to make that illegal. But basically, like when folks got things like, oh, this lady got a fine for hanging a Halloween decoration on a lamppost, and that and she ended up like going to court over it and then what? the city sent her I think it was um 
Indio sent her a, a bill for five thousand dollars. You, you, you yeah. actually do also in Washington State have to pay for the cost uh, of your defense. So you're entitled to a lawyer, right, under the Constitution, yeah, Sixth yeah. Amendment, right to counsel. But, but uh, if you, you know, you use a public defense lawyer, mm-hmm. you go to trial. If you lose mm-hmm. and you are convicted, the state of Washington has a statute that authorizes them to impose the cost of your of your defense attorney on you. And the courts have said that that is constitutional if it's only imposed on people mm-hmm. who have the ability to pay okay. and if uh, you can't pay if you have the ability to waive or avoid jail, essentially. But you – I mean people walk out of, of um, Washington courts with a bare minimum in felony cases of $600 of fines and fees, no matter how poor you are, wow. um, per charge, per case. Yeah. Um, and in some counties – Thousands and thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of dollars more because they're charging yeah. you for things like the filing fee for your case, yeah. the cost of your court-appointed public defender, nickel and diming everything. Yeah, nickel and diming everything. The wow. cost of your jail cell, right? Wow. Your 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 oh medical gosh. costs while you're in oh jail. That reminds me of when we were. This I feel like medical costs too. When we were at um, UW, when my son was born, and they charged us two thousand dollars for his bassinet. Yeah. Stay in the bassinet yep. for renting the bassinet. Yep. I was like two <laughs> two thousand dollars. I could buy you like. Do you want me to buy? I could just buy you another one. Yeah. Are, buy you gonna, like are you gonna seven of them? Are you gonna Probably, are you gonna yeah. incinerate it after he uses it? Like what's no? You're gonna re, you're gonna wipe it down and reuse Swat it. Yeah. Two thousand yeah. dollars. So your yeah. work has what? What are some of the things that you are especially excited about that you're doing as a youth policy director? So my my work as a youth policy director is. Um, more legislative and policy work. And so I do kind of a mixture of um, working to craft state legislation and Mm -hmm. trying to help move legislation through. Oh, that sounds really fun. Do you love it? I I do. I actually, like, well, if you ask me now, I love it. If you ask me in sort of (laughs) mid-February when we're getting to the (laughs) point of trying to, like, you know, like— push bills as hard as you possibly can and things Not aren't moving, fun. then it's less fun. Um, <laughs> the middle of session is always is always a little exhausting. Or yeah, when absolutely. or when someone, you know, calls you and is like, We're having a hearing on this bill tomorrow morning. Can you bring everybody? And it's like <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can I'm try. Everybody, um, and so you're trying to haul people all over. But uh, the speed of that is crazy. To it me. is like, insane. I don't, I'm like, how can you plan? I know. For you, this? You, the, the answer is you, you can't. can't. Right. Um, so you it's just like, like we. I was talking to someone about this recently. It might have been Nate actually about the like the citizen legislature and how you should be able to be just a regular citizen and work in Olympia, but it's not possible. No. And how like if you want to, you really have to be like. Either have to give up what you're doing or be a retiree to like get elected, right? And so that's how we end up having like this legislature that doesn't really mm. look like the citizenry. But it's um it's such an interesting thing. Like you, that's immersive. Like you are in Olympia. You're not just in Olympia. You are in Olympia. Yeah. Right? Well, and and in fact, there and then for folks who do advocacy work, right? There are big gradations between um, organizations that have sort of resident lobbying capacity, right. right? So like the ACLU, in addition to all of the policy folks who are based in Seattle and kind of do help with coalitions. And drafting sure. policy. We also have a lobbyist who basically just mm-hmm. lives in Olympia mm-hmm. and is there, you know, doing 17-hour days yeah. for the entirety of legislative session. And and the amount of um, access and information folks who have lobbyists have mm-hmm. versus people right. who, right. who don't even, is, yeah. is massive, right? So one of the things that I, I see as an incredibly important part of my job is to try to make sure that um, as much of that information and access is flowing out to mm-hmm. other folks we work That's with awesome. as humanly possible. But it's frustrating, I'm right? Sure, because yeah. um, there are always moments where a legislator, you know, if you're working in coalition, the legislator is only going to call one of you and they're right. going to say, mm-hmm. well, this is what's happening. Would you accept this amendment? And it's like, can I have 45 minutes to call <laughs> right. everybody, right? Like, or, 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 have, or have, you know, or have we have we anticipated this possibility right. and had these coalition conversations ahead of time so we sure. know where? But it's a, it's a, you know, the the nuts and bolts of how the democratic mm. sausage gets made are frankly terrifying mm-hmm. to yeah. me sometimes because um, it's like the jungle. It is. Yes, it is as like Upton Sinclair. Right? <laughs> the sausage <laughs> just made me think about the jungle. Um, What's in the meat? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And and then, you know, I also do a lot of work uh, sort of supporting community coalitions and doing kind of the advocacy short of Mm -hmm. lawsuits, right? So um, lawsuits are sometimes a really important tool to be able to break systems that are terrible and unjust. Um, And they can also be a really excellent tool to get people to pay attention to Mm -hmm. things that are terrible and unjust. Um, But they're not always the only or the most effective or efficient way to solve problems, right? So I do a lot of work um, trying to connect with folks, you know, living in impacted by the by the issues we care about, and giving them um, or working with them to build resources, information, capacity, advocacy. Sometimes I'll be bad cop in the background, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to to address the issues that are that are going on. you know, in their schools and in their kids' lives. So So can you talk about the coalition you're working with right now and the work you're doing in Spokane? Yeah. So I, uh, for now over two years, have been doing pretty intensive support um, uh, and work with a coalition um, called the Every Student Council Alliance in Spokane. So, um, And that's a coalition of both sort of individual parents of kids um, in Spokane Public Schools and also um, legal advocacy organizations, disability rights organizations, racial justice organizations, um, some direct service provider folks, the health district, which I love having the health district involved in Mm -hmm. this work, Mm -hmm. um, really focusing in on uh, suspension, expulsion, Mm -hmm. school policing, and particularly the ways in which those systems disproportionately impact kids of color and kids with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when we started this work a couple of years ago, Spokane had one of the highest rates of suspension Mm -hmm. and expulsion in the state. Wow. Um, and it's a big district, it right? Is, yeah. um, and and there was a ton of evidence that and, and arresting a lot mm-hmm. of kids on campus huh. for things like disturbing school. Like you would routinely a few years wow. ago, really? which is a, is a crime in Washington state, which should not be a crime. Good disturbing God. school. Disturbing is a, school is a crime. What the? If any what person qualifies as disturbing school. I feel like some things that I do could be considered disturbing <laughs> school. <laughs> <laughs> willfully cause a disruption to the oh. ordinary operations of school, which is literally like that's, that's, every, that's my does. every day. Yeah. <laughs> that's every day. I mean, so so you know, we 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 would routinely see cases yeah, in yeah. consultation, you know, talking to public defenders where kids would do things like curse their teachers out yeah. or refuse mm. to leave the classroom, and then they would get charged with the crime of disturbing school and and prosecuted. Right? Wow, um, that's crazy. Which is crazy because if you know. The criminal justice system is not a behavior management no. tool. Right. right. That's it, your own fault for having bad classroom management or not understanding how to work with well, building relationships with kids. Also, and, or not having the re- any other resources yes, available yeah. to you. It also shows something really interesting about how the law is applied because I can never imagine that being used in that particular way where we work, like that, that we would have disturbing school as like – a I mean, tool. A tool, yeah. yeah. I mean because the things that students get arrested for, like I feel like in Tacoma are – direct threats to public safety, like things like bringing a weapon to school, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things we would hear about that would be – and that those are very rare that that ha- occurs, right? Like, I mean, so – I mean, visibly occurs, right? There are probably yeah, things that happen. There's a lot of backstory. There's like, backstory, right? Like, no, like, I mean, but, like, the things that we see as educators in our, like, in our regular day-to-day work. So it's, like, how the law is applied is yeah. different in Spokane than and, it is in other and, cities. And I think that's exactly right, right? When we, we've pulled the data yeah. on, on sort of who, where disturbing yeah. schools charges get filed, sure. right? And they are not routinely getting filed in Seattle or in Tacoma, uh-huh. but yeah. they were routinely getting filed in Spokane. Interesting. Um, and so... You know, the combination of of all of those things um, led us to start working with folks locally to say, okay, well, how could you really try to move sort of substantive um, systemic culture change Mm -hmm. on this, right? Um, And not just, you know, taking away the tool of disturbing school, although, in fact, you know, for the most part, that that tool has been taken away. Mm -hmm. Um, That's good to hear. Because they adopted policies that said that they will not arrest kids for misdemeanor level offenses except mm. for things like um, assault and, you know, drug possession, which, again, mm. misdemeanor assault is a pretty low level thing. Yeah. And and I personally think that you shouldn't arrest kids for misdemeanor level offenses at all in yeah. school mm-hmm. because um, one of the folks I used to work with says, you know, and I think correctly, that schools are misdemeanor factories, right? Like hey. kids are yeah. just hey. definitionally yeah. doing yeah. low level kind of stuff because everybody does. Yes, you're a kid. Um, yeah, you're yeah, a kid. You're are, I feel like school's like learning lab. Like you figure out what the boundaries are. Like that's the, mm-hmm. it's a learning lab of life. 
Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, but um, but also, like, how could you build a system that was going to have alternative tools mm-hmm. available right. for teachers, right? And providing professional development and providing additional mentoring supports for nice. kids and providing, um, you know, building out a restorative practices infrastructure and making sure that you had, you know, family liaisons who were mm-hmm. able to connect. Um, and so we've been working in coalition um, for a couple of years and, and actually in what I call sort of tense collaboration with the district. Um, I mean, it Great is, word. It is it's collaborative. We know what that's like. But there's always a sort of, you know, we are in different positions Absolutely. on this, right? Um, and so there is a, a superintendent's work group that is trying to develop plans um, f- and for a, additional professional development policy changes yeah. that regularly reviews the data to see whether their uh, you know suspension rates are increasing, decreasing, mm-hmm. um, whether the disproportionality is being addressed. Um, and you know so far um, there are some places where we've made a lot of progress, right? So mm-hmm. policing is one, right? Mm-hmm. They've adopted a policy to take. Um, you know, misdemeanor arrests mostly off the table. The police officers are actually being trained in oh, things that are relevant wonderful. to schools, mm-hmm. right? So previously there what was a no. Concept. I, I know. Yeah. Um, you know, when a few years ago when I, I asked for all of the records about what they were being trained in, there, were, there was literally no police officer who was in Spokane Public Schools on a daily basis who had been who had received um, training in adolescent development, right? But they were being trained in how to use your Glock, um, yeah. which That's so weird. Um, Come on, guys! Because there was no policy Where's on shame training. Shame, shame, Poor shame. There we go. Um, SROs should be trained in adolescent yeah. development. Most of them aren't. That's in, so weird. Across the state, and and because it's just there's no requirements for training, yeah. right? right? And so yeah. what what training happens is usually directed by the law enforcement agencies as opposed to the schools. And there isn't really a state infrastructure. Hmm. Um, You know, we have a a state association of school resource officers that does sort of Mm -hmm. like a a one-day training for incoming Mm -hmm. school police. But, you know, how much could you really get about adolescent development and working with kids with disabilities and implicit bias and how the educational environment, right? Right. So a lot of the training is more ad hoc. Mm -hmm. and so Spokane, to its credit, has been pretty intentional about requiring a significant That's amount good. of professional development for That's its officers, good, yeah. about partnering with community organizations mm-hmm. to provide that, um, about making sure that it is targeted to you know actually what it means to work in an educational environment with kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that helps. Now, you know, do I think there should that that the amount of resources we put into policing is disproportionate? Of course, right? Mm-hmm. I think that we spend a lot of time and energy and money putting more officers in schools, and we would have better results if we put that time and energy and money into, you know, counselors and mental mm-hmm. health professionals and um, family liaisons and social workers, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Is there any training being done also, like, because uh, you're talking about SROs, but also for the educators? Yeah. So there was there has been training for administrators okay. on how to interact with SROs. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right that the, the training for educators on, like, the policing issues is mm-hmm. a gap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't blame teachers for this, right? I think that— Everybody um, blames for everything, though. You can just pile it on. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I, I no? mean, like, what the way I see it is this, right? Um, and I say this without—like, this is not me pandering, but, like, I, teaching is the most exhausting job in the entire world, Amen. right? Like when I went to law school, I don't feel pandered like, to. That's just true. Everyone was like, "Law school is so hard," and I was like, "Peoples, this is okay." <laughs> like I get to, I get to roll on in. I get to sit with my laptop passively. No one calls on me. I don't have to talk to anybody, right? And then. I do a ton of reading, and I get to think deep thoughts, and then I get to go home, right? Um, yeah. And I don't have 20,000 papers to grade, and I don't have to call this kid's mom, and I don't have this other kid who's having a complete and total meltdown with me, and what they really need is extra love and time, yeah. so I'm going to take them to the library tomorrow, and we're going to talk yeah. about books, right? Um, and so, you know, compared to teaching Lawyering is super easy. Um, But when you have that kind of exhausting interpersonal, right, like takes everything you have out Mm -hmm. of you job and you don't have a counselor or a mental health professional or a family liaison or a social worker or anybody else, right, and you have a kid who is just not you and they are not working, right? And Mm -hmm. I've had those kids too, right? I've had had kids throw things at me, right? because sometimes you just have that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if the only thing you've got in that building is a police officer, well, gosh darn you! I mean, mm-hmm. like, 
Uh, call the officer. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if the only thing we give teachers is... <laughs> Hopefully, like, that one's I know, good. It's a, that really affected you. We're, really, was, we're really working yeah, on that yeah, for us here, yeah. folks. This is... Uh, we're going sausage. We've got hammers. <laughs> like, awesome. Um, it feels really good. <laughs> we're so humanities. And with that, let's take a quick break. Okay. <laughs> Hey, Hope, I have the craziest story for you. Okay, what happened? I dreamed I booked a flight for my mom. With Alaska, right? Well, obviously, it was a dream, not a nightmare. <laughs> Ooh, you scared me for a second there. Yeah, so in my dream, I was trying to do something nice for her, and I thought, I know, I'll give her the world. That seems a little expensive and stop, very stop, Aladdin stop. from it like is the my 90s. Dream. I'll give her the world with the gift of travel. I can show you the world. So listen, in my dream, Michael B. Jordan was an Alaska Airlines oh, okay. flight attendant. This dream just went up yeah. a whole notch. Uh-huh. Yep. Can I jump in that dream? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You were in it, and everyone we know was in it. Um, it was amazing, as you can imagine. So he was giving me fruit and cheese plate, and oh. he told me I gave the cheese plate to my the cheese part to my neighbor because you know vegan, but the fruit yeah. was divine. I so I, I told he told me. Did you, did you know you can share your Alaska miles? Did you know that? Michael B. Jordan told me this in my dream. It's $10 <laughs> to share $10,000. Oh, that's not bad at all. That means that after saving up your miles, you could give your mom a round-trip ticket for less than $40 out of pocket. So that's like a really unknown secret, I think, and pretty yeah. amazing. How'd the dream actually end? Well, I woke up before it got really good. Oh, man. Bummer. But Alaska saved the day. I woke up and I shared my miles. That's really smart. I'm so glad it worked out. Hey, to book your next flight... Go to alaskaair.com. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. And we're back. Welcome back. <laughs> so uh, can you talk a little bit about what does this work look like in terms of laws and what might we expect in Olympia next year? Yeah. So, you know, uh, school discipline policy, right, is one of those things that is both hyper-localized yeah. and also um can be and often is governed by sort of state baselines. So there have been a fair amount of changes to the laws on school discipline Mm -hmm. in Washington over the past few years. We've gone from a system where, you know, in 2010, right, there was no statewide data collection. So no one actually even knew um, how this was operating. As somebody who, like, collects a lot of data, I'm like, "Mm, really? I know. (laughs) Well, and and there there are... Kids could be expelled and suspended indefinitely. Yes. So you could oh, wow. you yeah. could roll in yeah. on your first day of sixth grade and be expelled for functionally the rest of your life, yeah. right? Wow. And then those kids just disappeared, essentially. I remember that time period because um, in my 10th grade humanities class, actually, we were talking about it. We were looking at what the legislature was arguing about with it. And I had students write argument essays if kids should be suspended or not and what kinds of limitations. And so we sent yeah. them down to our representatives. And yeah. it was really interesting. Awesome. I was so happy that... That was finally, and it was also crazy. Like, why did it take so long to actually have this conversation? Yeah, yeah. So, in 2010, you think that was a pretty significant switch? That, that was about when the switch started happening. And so, we've been kind of incrementally since 2010. You know, first it started with data collection, and then it was limits on indefinite expulsion, and yeah. then um, there was a pretty comprehensive bill, House Bill 1541, that for you know the the, the big highlights of what it was a massive bill Mm. but the highlights of what it did for suspension and expulsion was um it limits the things that you can be kicked out for long amounts of time to to more Mm. serious behaviors so you can still be removed from class and suspended for you know just about anything frankly but Mm -hmm. um there's a cap essentially you get you Mm -hmm. can get 10 days for little stuff and anything above 10 days it has to be a more serious offense yeah Um, was that the same piece of legislation that also required there be a plan from the school for when the kid was supposed to re-enter exactly how to work that out yeah Mm -hmm. so so the legislation also required that if a kid is out for a long amount of time the school actually has to meet with the family Mm -hmm. um, meet with community supports and develop a plan for how you're going to bring the kid back and make sure that kid has got the supports they need to be Mm -hmm. successful in doing that Um, and it also requires Required that every kid who is out be given the opportunity to get comparable, adequate, and equitable education right. services. Mm-hmm. Which means, look, you can kick this kid out, but they are still your mm-hmm. responsibility, mm-hmm. and you, mm-hmm. the district, are going to have to educate yep. them some I, way. As a teacher, I have to say that I don't know how it's done in other school districts or other buildings. I only have the experience of being in our building, but sometimes that looks like. Uh, an, someone advocating for that kid, emailing teachers and saying, yeah. "Send me, yeah. send me stuff," and uh, that is that system seems to work pretty well. Although I don't know how um, much accountability there is for making sure that kids get what they need. Yeah, so, because it's like I mean, the systems are set up so that we, as teachers, are like, "Yes, we're sending the things that kids need," but it's I don't I don't know how. Um, 
Yeah, that, that's interesting. So being on the other side of it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so the law, you're right, the law kind of didn't, it just said you have to do it, but it yeah, didn't say yeah. how, yeah. right? Um, right. And so over the past couple of years, OSPI has been going through a rulemaking process to actually oh, put some yeah. meat to the bones of like how yes. you do it. Sure. And those rules are effective. That portion of those rules are just now going into effect, oh, okay. so there'll be a little more guidance. It's weird to see like how because on the on there's a policy side and there's like the functional side, like yeah, in our in our actual really rooms, vague, right? right? Like, mm-hmm. like kids have meetings, but then they who's yeah. documenting those meetings and when's the follow up meeting? Right. Yeah. No one's calling down and being like, "Did you do this follow up?" Well, and I think sometimes there's something that's sometimes lost in there too is like bias in documentation. So like how people are yeah. actually re- hearing and writing right. down what they're yeah. hearing because there's also that filter of like human yeah. that human experience of like listening to what's happening. Or or judgment, right? Um, yeah. When student, yeah. So, it, and and I think that's you're right. Like, there's this this there's a state level policy, right? But yeah. how that gets implemented, how it works out in different school right. districts, is a really localized issue. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think there's been a sort of a, a shift over the past eight years in terms of of school discipline policy, and so I'm not hearing a ton out of the legislature about you know. Um, trying to change that next year. The the yeah. one sort of bill that I think may come back is around suspensions of little kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, we there are still a really significant amount of suspensions of kindergarten through second graders uh, in Washington. So Can you talk about what do you mean by significant? So um, it depends on the district. Okay. Some districts don't suspend kids at all. But for example, in Spokane, which is one of the you know the district that I, I have the data almost memorized at this point, they suspend more kindergarten through second graders than they do all of high school. Huh? So if you take all of high school combined, there what? are fewer <laughs> kids suspended and expelled from high school in Spokane than from kindergarten through second grade. That's, which is that is batshit crazy. Thank you. Um, what? Why? How? Why? So, there are kids. I mean, and, and, and like baby children, right? Babies, yeah. Little, little children. Little tiny baby children. If you children. spend any time with kindergartners, they're not big. No. Kindergartners are, I mean, kin, uh, kindergartners are such baby child. So, What's one of the weirdest, I mean, I don't know how much of the into the data you can get, but like what's one of the weirdest cases you've seen in terms of that? So, like, I worked with a family uh, that actually testified on on a bill to ban K through two suspension. Um, in... K through two suspension is that sentence that that phrase. Is <laughs> I know. Even it's like, like why is this, this a thing we have to makes talk me about? bristle. Sorry, I'm go ahead. Um, I interrupted you. I, oh, I worked with a family whose uh, whose child had um, an IEP that required mm. her to have a resource a, a, an aid during recess, um, but the recess aid wasn't there. That day, they just didn't have an aid for her, and so she had a teacher who was trying to hustle yeah. her out onto the playground. She didn't want to go, so she kicked off her shoes, um, ran, and locked herself in the bathroom in the teacher's bathroom, and refused to come out mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of hours. And then when they finally like sprung her from the bathroom, they suspended her for five days. What? That's a complete. Her response is something I probably would have done. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, and all reasonable. Exactly right. So yes. I think, especially if she's yeah. having stranger danger about like, here's some random adult who I don't know. I'm well, yeah. you know, right, and, like, and we're not complying with yeah. the accommodations that are yeah. necessary. Right. So yeah. you know, I mean, I, a lot of the stories I hear involve kids who um, either you know, kids with kids with disabilities who have mm. IEPs who aren't who, whose IEPs aren't being followed, yep. um, oh, okay. or who haven't been sort of go, who haven't gone through the the diagnosis process. And there's also a fair amount of racial disproportionality. Can you in talk, this. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that. So we see that in discrimination against students with special needs and then and also it, racially. Yeah. I mean, so I think this is particularly in terms of what what cons- like what we think of as sort of disruptive, defiant or dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I have seen instances where really young, particularly black boys, yeah. are um, suspended for threatening people when what they are doing is like waving a pencil around. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of like, you know, like play sword fighting with a pencil, which, again, Play sword fighting is a fairly normative, uh-huh. like, little kid behavior, yeah, right? right? But um, because we are socialized yeah. to think of black boys in particular as um, more disruptive and more dangerous and older, mm, we don't right. give them the benefit of the doubt on that. There's this horrible research um, that just makes my heart hurt where they um, – they took a whole bunch of preschool teachers yeah. and they sort of did an eye tracking software on them and they they showed them a video and they said there's going to be some kids misbehaving 
um, we want you to press the button the second you see the misbehavior mm-hmm. and you'll get points for the quicker, quicker you can press them. And what they found is that when teachers are looking for misbehavior, they track kids of color significantly yeah. more than they track. Mm. Like they're looking at the kids of color waiting for yeah. the misbehavior right. to happen, mm. right? Because again, we we are, we are socialized, right? We grow up in this toxic racist stew mm. and we are socialized to mm. think that kids of color are going to be more disruptive. They, we think of them as older and more dangerous. And so again, the application of that kind of like, this is as what, what we're willing to give grace to, right? right? This is just yeah. a kindergartner who's because God, kindergarten is bananas, mm-hmm. right? Versus what we see as threatening or disruptive yep. or mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. is highly racialized in this wow. country. And you're also seeing it with boys too. Yeah. It's interesting, the gender dynamics as well. Yeah. I mean, boys are more likely to be suspended or expelled right. um, mm-hmm. generally, although girls – and again, particularly girls of color, right. the rates are growing much faster for hmm. them. Um, so, you know, and it, it looks a little bit different in different districts and different jurisdictions. Sure. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, who school is set up to serve, right. who, yep. who exactly. teachers are inherently inclined. I mean, like the reality is most teachers are white women. Yep. Right. And so mm-hmm. as a as a white woman, who do you see yeah. as yep. yours? Who are yep. you willing to give grace to? Mm-hmm. You know, that is racialized. I think about one of the books I read in grad school, um, Other People's Children, yeah, Lisa Delpit. I and book. I it just really resonated with me. And, and even the title of that book I've always loved because it just reminds you, like, these are real kids that that deserve love and are yeah. wonderful and valuable. Yeah. And there are other people's and they're yours and you need to like pay attention to what yeah. that dynamic is mm-hmm. and what that looks like. What's it like? We don't have a ton of time left, but I, I want to hit a couple more things. What is it like for you as a woman of color working in this field and looking at all this disproportionate gender and race issues yeah. and then also like your advocacy? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think the first thing is that I, I feel like I come – I approach education from a real community-centered lens in part because that is the way that my community conceives yeah. of education, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I also think that like as a lawyer and frankly as like a more white passing woman of color, mm-hmm. I do see that I get some degree of um, ability to interact in these – in this sort of policy spaces that I think most parents and families don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I And I – I'm very, very conscious of the way in which that kind of power dynamic plays out. Um, I'm also really conscious of the way that, like, you know, sort of hypervigilant for the way that I see this potentially uh, impacting my own children's lives, right? Um, You know, so far I haven't seen that disproportionality and, and felt like my kids were being the targets of discrimination. But I'm, you know, knowing that the, the data is the data. The numbers are the numbers, right? Yeah. The risk is there for mm-hmm. my kids. Um, I'm also really hyper vigilant about that. Um, and, you know, I think as a as a general matter, um, folks spend too much time listening to sort of like lawyers and administrators and policy makers in mm-hmm. this space and not enough time actually really listening to the voices and experiences mm-hmm. of, of parents and students, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of lived experience is always going to be um, at least as valuable, if not more valuable than my sort of like data and statistics and yeah. numbers approach yeah. to things, right? Um, and so one of the things that I try to be really conscious of is always thinking, okay, well, no data without stories, no stories yeah. without data, and trying that. to mm-hmm. make sure that we're bringing those things together all the time. That's awesome. Um, so thinking about that work, I mean, you kind of hinted at what was happening next year for in Olympia. Is there anything that we should be paying attention to as Washingtonians, as teachers, educators? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think is absolutely going to be happening in Olympia next year that folks need to pay attention to is conversation around school safety and particularly mm-hmm. what we do in response to school shootings, right? Yeah. Every time there is a school shooting, there is a sort of rush to fix that problem. And unfortunately, Almost all of what people instinctively want to do in response to those problems is empirically wrong and mm-hmm. damaging to children, right? Um, so, you know, there is a there is a, a big conversation happening among lawmakers and among policymakers about what bills can come down to um, 
prevent school shootings. And a lot of what um, is surfacing in those discussions are things like, can we put police officers, armed police officers in every school? Um, I've heard people (laughs) advocating that we make schools. I literally was in a meeting once where a law enforcement officer said, I don't understand why we don't just make all the schools bunkers and slap some kid art up on the wall. Um, What the hell? I I, I cringe. Like it was, I I tried a poker face and that was one where I was like, poker face gone. Um, Or, or, or can we create That's so apocalyptic. Special... I just like <laughs> yeah. slap some kid yeah. art on the walls. That will yeah. make it look like a school. Yeah. Or can we, or can we create special schools for those kids, right, wow. who we decide are dangerous essentially yeah. like go to a fully segregative model. And and all of those things are empirically proven to undermine yeah, school safety, right? Yeah. right? Because like let's be real, right? First of all, school shootings are impossibly like incredibly rare. Yep. And yeah. um School still is and remains the safest place for children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, compared to every other place in their community, school is the safest place. And when you look at school shootings that have been averted, right, mm-hmm. instances where people were were potentially planning and mm-hmm. getting ready, what averts school shootings is kids know what's going on mm-hmm. and they trust the adults around them enough to bring it to their attention, Mm -hmm. and the adults around them have enough sort of preventative resources, right? They've got counseling, they've got supports, they've got mental health therapy, that they can wrap their arms around that kid who is posing a potential danger and make sure that they are safe, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we empirically know prevents these Mm -hmm. things from happening. It is not putting... Police officers with guns in every building. Or giving teachers, teachers having guns. Or had a gun. I, <laughs> so the teachers having guns debate is one of those ones that honestly I feel like my head is going to explode every time someone brings it up. <laughs> it makes me think of that uh, the Barack Obama meme. I sent you that one yesterday where where Barack Obama it's like in a press conference and he's so just incredulous, like his face is just like really, what really yeah. like with the hand like really. Are you gonna- no, I mean so. The idea of having teachers with guns is so horrifying to me. Um, I mean, so let's say one thing first, right? If we had fully armed teachers, I think that significant amounts of families of color and and, and families of kids with disabilities would simply pull themselves out of the public education. Like, Mm -hmm. I would not send my kid to school if their teacher was Mm -hmm. armed. I mean, we just saw yesterday an instance with a trained SRO who tased a child because she was sleeping in class. What? You know, in that's o- not listed on Oklahoma. the support behavior plan. No. The- yeah. Also, that's like apart from being like that's cruel like and- cruel and unusual. It's also extremely unethical oh, yeah. to tase mm. someone who is unconscious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's essentially very likely to kill them, right? And yeah. so, if you were to arm, whether it's with lethal force or non-lethal force, every educator in America, the likelihood that the the likelihood that those that that is going to be used to harm kids mm-hmm. is exponentially higher yeah. than the likelihood that you could somehow intervene in an instance where a person right. came to school mm-hmm. to harm kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not even close statistically, right? Um, and it's also just a colossal waste of money on nothing, right? Even right. if we set aside all the ways in which kids will be physically hurt by that, and they absolutely will yeah. be, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how much money it would take. Mm-hmm. To buy all those guns, to arm all those teachers, to figure out how to safely store them. And think about how many counselors and how much mental health therapy and how much like professional development for teachers and and how much like basic health care for every child we could pay for with that money. I mean, even if you just look at police officers, right? The salary, the average salary of one school police officer in Washington is the salary of three paraeducators. Really? Yeah. I lo- those num I'm wow. I was I've actually been looking up some numbers and I'm really glad to hear you say that only in the sense of it helps you wrap your head around it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so three so, paraeducators, three paraeducators one. So, so and I can, I can, I can testify. Then I think anyone, anyone else who's ever spent any time with effective paraeducators can testify is that paraeducators are sometimes the first adult person, mm-hmm. especially if they're a one-on-one paraeducator um, working in with students who see warning signs that exactly. kids are not doing okay exactly. because they are in classrooms the they have eyes maybe even that the teacher doesn't because they are sitting at a student level maybe working with students exactly. so i mean yeah that's yeah so when if you want to think about like 
to some degree, right, as, as you all are seeing now, right, education resources, it's a finite pool. It's mm-hmm. not like we have infinite money to throw at everything. Mm-hmm. And so where do you want to put right. your dollars? Yeah. And and just, em, just empirically, right, even setting aside philosophically, empirically, you will get more out of investing those dollars in prevention resources, mm-hmm. in positive school climate, in paraeducators, in Absolutely. nurses, in yeah. counselors, then you will investing that money in police officers, in you know fancy surveillance cameras, which <laughs> also do not work. What about teacher body cams? I have recently oh seen that God. on Twitter. Like if yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, well, like yeah. that's so expensive. <laughs> we, were, I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. It's like yeah, I mean, body cams. Would be, if you want to see tape of your kid being a being a turd to me, yeah, that's. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, I'll, and, I'll tweet it to you. And, and the likelihood, again, that those things are going to be misused, yeah, right? right? I mean, this is the mission creep thing you see with school mm-hmm. police, right? Everyone justifies it as saying, it's oh, we're going to put them in because it's going right. to keep our kids safe from shooting. Yeah. And what you end up having is officers being called in when the kid calls you the F word, yeah. right? right? It tells you to F off. And it's like, you know what? Because school shootings, again, that kind of school violence is so rare right. yeah. that the mission creep happens almost immediately. Right. Um, and and that you know so so if we put the money into those kinds of resources, we are actively going to be harming kids. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I am I am concerned that what we're going to be seeing out of Olympia, I, I think it's a hundred percent sure we will be seeing bills yeah. about mm-hmm. um, school safety. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that the you know the working group that I am a part of, there are no teachers on it. Uh, that's also one of my favorite things when like, you want a teacher on there's it? no stakeholder <laughs> I, that actually is like the most either the implementer I, or the yeah, one that's because most I'll tell you what I really like being in Olympia so <laughs> if you need somebody I, I have asked for the work group what, the membership was determined by the Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs which manages the working group how and many so, women are in that group three oh, all women of, of color oh, out of like good. 12 oh. um, so uh, yeah so we have a little women of color like corner. Power, corner. power corner, power corner, yeah. power corner, yeah, hold um, it down. <laughs> and uh, but you know, it, it, there are no, there are no, no teachers on that. And actually, yeah. not even any. Even though I have asked for this, we've had educators come, we've had principals sure. and assistant principals yeah. and counselors, but we actually haven't even had a teacher come to present to the group wow. about what they think would. Do you think would, we could get release time for that? I don't know. We can figure it out. <laughs> um, but but yes. So I think yeah. I think teachers need to be part of this conversation. I think Absolutely. parents need yeah. to be part of this parents conversation, too. right? Like Definitely. there's so much there's so much advocacy for things like lockdown drills. And yeah. I still remember that my kid when he went to kindergarten, my, yeah. my eldest, he came from school one day and he said, "Mama, we practice today what happens if the lion comes." And I was like, "Blink twice. What?" Yeah. You're like, what's a lion? And then he told me that, "Well, so they they we were practicing like if there's a lion outside our windows, like where are we going to hide? And if there's a lion outside the front door, where are we going to hide? And how do we be really quiet so the lion doesn't know we're in there and come to eat us? And then, it, you know, you figured out that, can, that yeah. what they're, pra- that, uh, the, 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 they're practicing their active shooter drill. I suppose but, that's like a nice euphemism. Exactly. They don't want to tell them, the kids we're, we're practicing for what happens if someone comes to shoot you. Yeah. But so we're going to practice the lion instead. But you think about what that yeah. does psychologically, right, mm-hmm. to kids, what it does to the school climate to constantly be practicing, right? right? And and in some in some places well, they yeah. do these like like they do essentially like little fake reenactments where they're yeah. carrying bodies through the hallways yeah. like yeah. fake bodies. I've read them. some of that. It's yeah. so disgusting. I also like I know that it makes sense that they they try to make it less scary for younger students by saying like it's a lion or something. But that also gives your kids really like like um, skewed perception of like wildlife. Like are there just wild lions like roaming just the streets? Roaming, We're never just going to the ever the like, some, yeah. like some uh, animal liberation like busted into Woodland Park, you know, and just like released all the beasts into the city. Like I feel like that could be like problematic for him yeah. when he's in like seventh grade and he's like, lions. <laughs> <laughs> the lions are going to, we practice this. I mean, you know, and again, it's, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be prepared, yeah. right, for these. Not. Yeah, but, I mean, but, I, but yeah. you know, I, what I'm worried about is that we are going to put all of our energy and all of our money and all of our policymaking into mm. response right. as opposed to prevention yeah. when we know that prevention is massively more mm. effective. Um, so that is an area where, you know, I'm going to be tracking that work really closely. I'm going to be starting to to um, try to build coalitions of folks to um, address these bills as they're coming. But that's something that I think, you know, if, if what folks are interested in is trying to make Make sure that, you know, teachers and schools have the resources to support students mm-hmm. in crisis um, and that we're putting our energy into yeah. that as opposed to 
bunker schools and armed teachers and an armed right. police officer in every building. Because that kind of so- sounds yeah. like prison. Oh, yeah. Hey. Yeah. That's a good note to end it on, I think, um, to order to wrap up this part of the conversation. So real quick, um, I read somewhere in your bio that uh, you really love The Prince's Bride. I Is do this true? so much. <laughs> awesome. Talk- shift completely. Can you yes. talk a little bit about why is that one of your favorite movies? I mean, because I'm a child of the 80s, right? <laughs> but also because it is the on- literally the only movie on earth where I think the movie is better than the book. Oh. And that is like – so um, – it, it is also hilarious um, and um, like hilarious and not really like not mean, yeah, right? It's so, um, funny. it's so funny and so sweet. Um, and I convinced my entire family to dress up as the Princess Bride when my son was five that's and my awesome. daughter was three. Aww, that's sweet. Um, so my daughter was Princess Buttercup. My son was Inigo Montoya. Um, my husband was Wesley, and I was a rodent of unusual size. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so it is the movie that I watch every time I am sick. And so that's how you know when I'm sick is because I'm at home. You're on the couch, on the watching, couch the watching the Princess, Princess Bride. Watching the Princess Bride. One other weird trivia question. What is your least favorite law show? When you watch it or see it, you're like, this is ruining the profession and oh, skewing people's understanding Perceptions of, of your... So I don't watch any law shows. Oh, the okay. only... Oh. Because... I mean, because, like, seriously, you got to take a break sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I do have a secret soft spot for my cousin Vinny, which I will note is nothing like the practice of law. I mean, the reality, <laughs> friends, is that, like, most of what lawyers do is paperwork, and mm-hmm. you yeah. almost never go to court. And when you do go to court, um, unless you're a criminal defense lawyer, those folks are in court all the time. Mm-hmm. But other law than them, <laughs> yeah, but other than them, Dun. all the other lawyers are just, like, writing things down and having conference yeah. calls. <laughs> so is that actually, we have a segment called Guilty Favesies. Interchangeable. Right, ladies! Is that kind of your guilty favesy? Or do you have something else that you are really in love with but also kind of guilty about? So I, uh, so yes, my cousin Vinny is a guilty favesy, but I would say the most guilty of them is actually celebrity gossip magazines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a Our brief, last guest said Kim Kardashian. Yeah, so. so there was a brief period of time and I where my my uh, husband and best friend got me a subscription to Us Weekly, and nice. it just appeared every week. And I don't know who half of these people are, but I was like, that is a crazy outfit. And, oh, yeah. stars, they're just like us. They eat ice cream, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've totally done that same thing. And so I um, – I kind of I kind of adored that and it was nice. mindless and perpetuating all sorts of horrible stereotypes yep. about gender Truth. and damn, but like my kids read them now too. So, <laughs> so like my ten year old my my ten year old son would be like, Oh, what's going on with Taylor Swift right now? <laughs> so, That's so funny. Mine's single serving snacks that I put in my lunch. Yeah. Um, I actually have noticed a theme and I, I just have to put it out there because other maybe folks who've listened to a couple episodes maybe like all of my guilty favesies are things I feel really excited about but are bad for the environment uh-huh. and so like I know it's like that I know I'm so bad I'm so terrible <laughs> so like the uh, my favorite is Justin's chocolate hazelnut butter pouches oh yeah they're like lunchbox pouches and delicious. like they're delicious and the only reason I get those instead of like the jar and just put it in a container is the convenience factor mm. and those little foil packets are not recyclable because they're plastic pressed up against foil and I shame. I <laughs> love them, and apparently also hate the environment. Hate the environment. I'm super basic, and I actually really secretly love candles. And even though I, I just go or scented, all variety, okay. Particularly, even though I have weird allergies about scents, but I love walking down. Target the aisles and looking at the candles on sale and then I have to just reel in the self-control so I just smell like 20 of them and then I'm like hope go do something with your life or something else (laughs) our last segment is do your fudging homework interchangeable white ladies so uh, what homework do we have for our listeners today I actually want to recommend an article that I've seen float around recently and was rereading can the ACLU become the NRA for the left and I'm so intrigued by that idea yeah, and it makes me laugh and smile, and also I'm like, hmm, curious. Yeah. You ate that uh, article? <laughs> well, so here's – I mean, I love the ACLU, obviously. I work for the ACLU. Um, but I also think that, like, the, the – 
where political change is happening now is not in concentrating power in large organizations, huh. right? And if we mm. want to create a more just society, we're going to have to figure out how to um, have – you know, sort of bigger national, you know, name brand kind of organizations mm. like the ACLU being like true authentic partnership with grassroots community organizations in a way that is sustainable and not just kind mm. of like individual like, oh, we're going to partner on this bill or we're going to partner on this mm. lawsuit. Right. And so the idea that we would want to become the NRA, right, which is this kind of like monolithic, I'm going to, th- you know, because mm-hmm. I have so much money, I'm going to um, be the most powerful. That's at least what I would hope is not the future yeah. of the organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, so that's why when you said that article, I rolled my eyes. I just, like, <laughs> I just yeah. think it's funny. You couldn't see the eyes, but they were rolling. And also thinking about like just the dynamic of um, when you look at other big organizations and figure out like, you know, what you're going to steal and stuff. And some of the things I was reading is around the idea of like marketing. But I feel like mm-hmm. the NRA is also like not very good at shifting um, their narrative at the same time as, you know, they tell these stories and mm-hmm. sad videos and everyone gets into it. Um, <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's, yeah, awesome. So what would yeah. be your homework, Vanessa? Um, that was a great question. I uh, would love to see more things like adult civics happy hour mm. everywhere. So my hey, shout uh, out. So, so, so seriously, <laughs> then, like homework is uh, attend adult civics happy hour if you're in Tacoma. If you're in Seattle, come to the ACLU's Flights and Rights, which is very similar, right? Which is us nerding out over alcohol um, about. Um, you know, policy issues and things mm-hmm. that are happening. Um, I really just think any degree of individual civic engagement and particularly mm-hmm. issue-oriented civic engagement as mm-hmm. opposed to solely um, candidate-focused yeah. civic engagement mm-hmm. is the most important thing that folks can be doing right now. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Anything? I actually have to jump on something that Vanessa recommended earlier, which uh, is being clued into what's happening in the legislature yeah. because I feel like as teachers, we have a little more access to information via our union and via mm-hmm. other channels to be um, informed. But for folks who are not in a workplace where they're necessarily getting like policy updates, for example, on their in their email, like that, think about um, how you can engage more with what's happening in Olympia because it has a big impact on for us how we do our jobs, but also like just general citizens how we navigate mm-hmm. our lives. So just get clued in this year. Um, mm-hmm. When's the first day of session? Uh, session starts the first week of January. Okay. Um, one of the easiest ways to get clued in is you can sign up for your mm-hmm. local legislators emails. Um, those are obviously right. Those are for their constituents and they'll be more targeted. But if folks are interested in particular issues, right, if you're interested mm-hmm. in um Education issues follow the Equity in Education Coalition's newsletters because they offer um, kind of bill updates, um, you know, and there's folks from across advocacy organizations from across the kind of political or issue oriented spectrum that do legislative bill trackers. And Mm -hmm. you can just get those dumped in your email and Mm -hmm. then you'll know. Um, And for folks who are interested in kind of being active in the advocacy on school safety stuff. Send me an email. Awesome. Um, because, How can they contact uh, you? So the, my email at the ACLU is vhernandez at aclu-wa.org. Um, and I have mailing lists for um, you know particular bills and, and particular topics where I keep folks apprised of this is what's happening. There's going to be this. There's going to be a hearing on this day. Is anyone interested in participating? Mm-hmm. Here's how you send letters. Here are the important targets for this piece of legislation. Um, so that's another way on, on the issues that we work on that, pe- that folks can be engaged. And I love having teachers engaged. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye. The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is doing a book club. A book club. What are we reading, Annie? We're reading White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. So please pick up your copy at your public library. Robin with a Y. Or (laughs) at um, King's Books. Yep. And read it. And then post on Twitter, on Facebook, social media. You can use two hashtags. Hashtag IWL Reads and hashtag... Read Read less less basic. basic. Thanks. The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Listen to our other podcasts like Move to Tacoma, Citizen Tacoma, Nerd Farmer, Crossing Division, Taco Man, and Flounder's B-Team. And please support Channel 253 with a monthly or annual membership at (laughs) channel253.com. We are so humanities. That's awesome. We should get that on a shirt. We are so humanities. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska! Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.